Revelation chapter 13. I'll read the passage first and and then we will uh, look over it. Beginning in verse number 11 of Revelation 13. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Last Sunday we discussed the place of symbolism in Scripture and how often we resist we're uncomfortable with its approach. We would much more prefer a direct uh, approach. But as I said last Sunday, we are dealing with God's word, which God has communicated to us through the prophets and the apostles in ways that he chose, in ways that are appropriate. He chose to communicate his truths. And what is required of us as God's people is humility as we approach Scripture and a realization that we can never understand it apart from the Spirit and a recognition that we can never fully comprehend everything that is written. Part of this is because we're human, we're finite. Part of it is because we're sinners and our sinfulness affects our intellect and our hearts as well as it does the rest of us. And part of it is the place of mystery. That if God tells us everything about himself, there is still a great deal about him that is mysterious and beyond our ability to comprehend. However, what we can understand by the spirit and the grace of God, we are responsible for and we are responsible to obey. As I said last week, chapter 13 is the chapter in Revelation about which there has been the most speculation. I would say perhaps more than any other part of the book. And there is a great deal of symbolism. But I I find that there's a real tendency to want to drift back toward a literalism. And we will see it as we go through the passage today. And I will say at different points we need to resist the temptation to go to a more literal approach here. As John wrote this letter in the mid-60s A.D., he did so to prepare God's people for the world-shaking events that were to occur. Christians had experienced some persecution. We read about this in the book of Acts. Um, we read about Stephen being martyred, uh, James the Apostle being martyred, and, and Paul being arrested and beaten. But what was about to happen was beyond, I think, what they could comprehend. And it had at least three components, the demonic, the political, as well as the religious. With the demonic aspect behind the scenes, so to speak, the opposition that the church was going to face was going to come from that ancient serpent, the dragon, 
the devil, Satan, the accuser of the brothers. And this had been going on for centuries, which I think is what chapter 12 is about. Um, that the serpent has always been trying to destroy the woman and her seed. Even before the fall, I mean, the reason that he goes into the garden to deceive her is to destroy her, to destroy humanity. But ultimately he fails. And in chapter 12, we see three failures. First, in his attempt to kill the Messiah, the woman's child. Secondly, he's defeated in the heavens as Michael and his angels defeat him. And thirdly, in his attempt to destroy the woman's, uh, the woman that is God's people in the wilderness. As a result, the dragon in his fury continues to make war against God's people. Not because he is strong. I've said this before. Not because he is strong, but because he has lost. And there are examples, by the way, of his losing found throughout Scripture. Let me just give you one that you're probably very familiar with, but we don't think of it in this light. The story of David and Goliath. We usually think of the little boy with the slingshot who, who defeats the giant. But look at the story again. The giant is someone who single-handedly planned to destroy God's people, to defeat Israel. And he is described in part as wearing a coat of scale armor. Armor that looked like scales. And what has scales? A serpent, a snake. And David defeats him. And how does David defeat him? The head. He, he slings a stone and it catches Goliath on the head and kills him. And if you think about it, remember the words that God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Goliath's case, it was his head. The man who looked like a serpent caught a stone in the head and then David in fact, beheaded him. And so this war between the serpent and the woman, his war to carry out or to destroy her seed has been going on since the beginning of time. But we've also noted that he is not a one-note opponent. He, only, he does not have only one approach in seeking to destroy the woman. As we see in chapters 13 through 19, he uses physical threat. He uses spiritual deception. He uses material seduction. Here in chapter 13, we are told of two beasts, one that uses physical threat, the other that uses spiritual deception. The beast from the sea, as we've seen, is the Roman Empire. The beast from the land we looked at last week speaks of the religious leadership of Israel. The second beast is also known as the false prophet. We will get to this as we go along. But this is an entirely fitting way to refer to the second beast. There is a falseness about this beast. There is a contradiction between what it really is and what it looks to be. And so it is a lamb, but it has two horns. Well, lambs don't have horns. And it speaks as the dragon does. You see, while the first beast is coercive and powerful and very overt, if you wish, in its opposition, the second beast is much more covert and much more deceptive. Today we will continue, we looked at verse 11 last week, today we'll pick it up at verse number 12 and look at how John describes this second beast, specifically the actions of the second beast. First of all, he tells us that he, that is the second beast, exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf. That is, 
The first beast is the agent of the dragon, but the second beast is the agent of the first one. If you wish, the Jewish religious authorities were the agents of the Roman Empire, of the Roman political authority. You may or may not know this, I don't know how well you know your New Testament history, but about the time that Jesus went to the temple when he was 12 years old, you know, we're told the story how he gets left behind, about that time, the Roman Empire began to appoint the high priest. That is, the Roman governors would say who would be the high priest. Now, understand this. A pagan empire made the choice as to who would be the representative of God's people. The one who would go into the Holy of Holies, the holiest place once a year, as a representative of God's people, to make atonement for God's people, the Romans chose who this would be. That's really quite staggering. I, and I'm trying to think of an equivalent. Um, I know that in the 20th centuries we've had, in the 20th century, we've had communist regimes who have appointed certain people to be cardinals, for example, within Roman Catholicism. That is not the Pope decides, but the communist regime. A regime that does not believe in God, they get to pick the cardinal. It's like, well, no, that, what's wrong with this picture? That's not right. But this is what happened in the first century A.D. The Romans were the ones picking the high priest. And therefore, the high priest were very concerned about Jesus. And I read this verse to you several weeks ago, but now, with that in mind, listen as I read the priests are meeting, and one of them says, if we let him, that is Jesus, go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If we don't shut this guy up, the Romans are going to take our place away. It's like, wait a minute, it's not, the Romans aren't supposed to be deciding this. But that's how corrupt things have become in the first century. The authority of the high priest came from the Romans, not from God. Something is seriously wrong. Secondly, we are told that this beast made the land, that is Israel and its inhabitants, worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. Twice in this passage, by the way, we're told about that, that wound, that fatal wound, that apparently the first beast had a fatal wound but survived. It is a resurrection of sorts. It's a, a counterfeit resurrection. The basis of worship is resurrection. In the Christian faith, we worship because Christ has been raised from the dead. As John sees it, this counterfeit system also worships based on resurrection. But it's a false resurrection. I think the Jewish thinking ran this way. If Jesus had been the Messiah, he would have defeated the Romans he had thrown the Romans out, and we'd have peace. He didn't defeat the Romans. He didn't throw the Romans out. Therefore, he is not the Messiah. And then we hear the words that we read in the Gospel of John. We have no king but Caesar. That's worship. Worshiping the emperor as king. The third thing we are told about the second beast is he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Jesus warned about this. Matthew 24, 24. 
for false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. The second beast is a fake, a counterfeit Elijah. He's trying to do what Elijah did. And again, the language here is symbolic. It isn't literal. John is not saying that these religious leaders called fire down from heaven, but that they were false prophets trying to imitate a genuine prophet and to do miraculous signs. And why did they do these signs? Why did Elijah do it at Mount Carmel? So that people would return to their worship of God. That's not what John sees here. It is so that people will worship the first beast. The fourth thing that we are told is that because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the land. That is, he deceived Israel. Now, Moses was very clear about this in, in a very strong passage in Deuteronomy chapter 13. And, and let me read to you. He warned Israel centuries before. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you, and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder. And if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place. In other words, someone comes into town and says, I'm a prophet and is able to do miraculous signs. And he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow, him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him, serve him and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death. Because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He has tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you. It's one of the ironic things about human nature. We will not believe the truth, apparently, that's what we argue, without a sign. When Jesus was here, the people who didn't believe him, they kept saying, do a sign, do a, mirac a miraculous sign, do a miracle, and then we will believe. And Jesus tells them, no, you will not believe. And we need to remember that, that people say, well, you know what, if I see a miracle, I will believe in God. No, you won't. Okay. Miracles do not, believe, do not lead to belief in God. However, they do, they do lead to belief in something that is wrong. So if somebody does a miracle, that is not going to lead you to faith in God. It may lead you to faith in a false God. And so while Jesus was here on earth, he performed many miracles. These people did not believe. Now Jesus is gone and these people are doing miracles and people believe. Not in God, but in the false God, the first beast. The fifth thing we are told about this second beast is he ordered the people, that is the people of Israel, to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Now here's one of these points where we need to be careful that we don't suddenly start going toward literalism and then people are like, well, this is like a robot or some type of cyborg, you know, that, that because of modern technology was created. No. He's not talking about an image. He's talking about 
idolatry. What an image represents, and that is an idol, the idolatry. Let me read to you what someone has written about idolatry. Idolatry in its larger meaning is properly understood as any substitution of what is created for the creator. By the way, that's a simple definition of idolatry. We substitute creature or something created for the creator. People may worship nature, money, mankind, power, history, or social and political systems instead of the God who created them all. The New Testament writers in particular recognize that the relationship need not be explicitly one of cultic worship. That is, sacrifices, services, you know, all that type of stuff. A man can place anyone or anything at the top of his pyramid of values, and that is ultimately what he serves. Idolatry is replacing or putting something in the place of God. And when John says that they caused an image to be created... It's not a literal image. It is the replacing of God with an idol, with something that should not be there. The larger Westminster Catechism says this about the second commandment. No graven images. The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and anywise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself, tolerating a false religion, all superstitious devices, corrupting the worship of God, adding to it or taking from it, whether invented or taken up of ourselves or received by tradition from others. In other words, any type of worship that is not what God has instituted may in fact be a violation of the second commandment. It may in fact be idolatry. And the question is, were the Jewish religious leaders guilty of this? Yes, they were. Again, this is one of those things where I think we we tend to have a very narrow view. We don't get into our history. Did you know that if we could go back in time and go to the temple in the first century, as we entered one of the gates, we would see a big golden eagle over the gate. The eagle representing the Roman power, the Roman Empire. Doesn't that seem like violating the second commandment of having a graven image, particularly of a place of worship? And if we could go back in time, we would know from the book of Leviticus that twice a day there are sacrifices. The morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice. But again, if we went back in the first century, we would find that the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice included a sacrifice for the Roman Emperor. A bull in the morning and a bull in the evening. And it is, in fact, stopping this sacrifice that led to the war of 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem. The religious authorities recognized Rome as the pinnacle of power. That's the top of the pyramid. That is God for them. And John sees it as the second beast causing an image to be created of the first one. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and caused all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Again, let's not go into this literal thing that, oh no, they created an image and the image can talk. No, no, no. Listen to the language. 
It is the language of creation. God created man and gave him the breath of life. And what is the first thing that man does, as recorded in Scripture? It's not the first thing he does, but it's the first thing that we're told about. He speaks. He names the animals. So here we have the Jewish religious authorities recreating reality. The reality is they're occupied by the Romans. The reality is the Romans are calling the shots. The reality is they have compromised what God gave them in terms of worship. They don't see it. They don't see it at all. They have recreated their world and they say the Romans are good. There's a fascinating passage in the the Gospel of John. I don't know if fascinating is the right word. But where Jesus tells them that they need to be freed from sin. And they say, we have never been under the power of anyone else. It's like, what? See the Roman soldiers down the street? What are you talking about? Well, the Jews had so recreated reality as to say, the first beast, he's good. The first beast, he keeps us, keeps things good. It's really quite staggering. And if, if someone refused to worship the beast, that is, if someone said, no, this is not good, this is not right, they would cause them to be killed. If you look at it, um, cause all who refuse to worship the image to be killed. We saw last week how that the Jews, throughout the book of Acts, persecute the church. And one of the things that they keep bringing up as they, you know, they arrest people and bring them to the judge is they say, you see this guy here? He doesn't like Roman authority. He's against Roman authority. He says that there's another king. He needs to be punished. They're doing exactly what John is describing. They want people to be put to death because they don't worship the first beast. It's like, wait a minute, you people are Jews. You're supposed to worship the true God, not a false God. But there's something else. Not only putting people to death, but now forcing people to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark. And this is everyone here. We are told small and great, rich and poor, free and slave. What is the mark? We are told it is the name of the beast or the number of his name. And again, I think at least let's talk about the mark before we get to the number. Let's not let's not. Well, let's resist the temptation to think literally. I think most of my life people have been coming up with different things that this could be, that uh, that it might be a tattoo. And then now with modern technology, sorry, we have these things that can be put under our skin, Uh, all these different things. And then it's your Social Security number. No, it's your credit card number. That's what it is. No, please. It says on your forehead or in your right hand. And we find this in the Old Testament time and time again, that we are to put God's law on our forehead and in our hand. And what does that mean? Is that literal? No. It is what we think. It is what we do. That's what it's referring to. And those who do not acknowledge the beast in their thinking and in their doing, those who act like there's another power out there, like God, 
his son, the kingdom of God, these people will not be allowed to participate in the economic system. And if you remember back in chapters 2 and 3, some of the churches in Asia Minor, their members were not allowed to participate in business because they were Christians, because they were not buying into the system that had been set up. Just let me read to you a couple of verses. Deuteronomy 6, 8. Tie them, that is God's laws, as symbols on your foreheads and bind them on your Symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. But even in the book of Revelation, we are told about such things. In chapter 7, we are told about those who are sealed on the forehead as the servants of God. And the Lord willing, next week, the first verse of chapter 14, he had his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. But as I mentioned when we went through chapter 7, this is a parody. This is a counterfeit. This is Satan, the dragon, through the first beast and the second beast, trying to imitate what God has done. God has sealed his people. You belong to me. Nothing can take you out of my hand. Satan's like, well, we've got to have that. We need something like that. I know, let's have a mark. And again, it's not literal, but it's a sense of... You must belong to me. When we went through this, I, I mentioned that the word used for the mark of the beast and for the seal of Christ are two different words. The seal is given graciously. God in his grace calls us to be his people. The mark is forced on people. You must receive this mark or you will not be able to buy or sell. To get along in the Roman Empire... You had to acknowledge them as the supreme authority. You are to think like a Roman. You are to do like a Roman. And the Jewish religious leaders are saying, yes, guys, this is what you need to do. You need to think like a Roman. You need to do like a Roman. Okay, now we come to verse 18. And this is the one part that everybody seems to know about the book of Revelation. Those who know nothing about Revelation know about 666. Seems to be one of those, well, it's just, everyone seems to know about it. What does John tell us in verse 18? First of all, it calls for wisdom. So this isn't something like, oh yeah, I get that. that you know, I can figure that out. Secondly, that if you have insight or understanding, you are to calculate the number of the beast. The first beast, not the second one. And thirdly, the number is man's number, which is 666. What does this all mean? I think there are at least three things, and I I can't tell you everything about this, but there are three things that I think, if you know these three things, will help you understand. First of all, in ancient alphabets, they did not have, or let me start with In ancient cultures, their alphabet also represented numbers. See, the Arabs were the first ones to develop one of the first to develop a numerical system where you had symbols for numbers. Other cultures used their letters as numbers. In Greek, the first nine letters of the alphabet were one through nine. The next ten were for the tens, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. And then the rest represented hundreds. Unless that seemed very strange to you, think about Roman numerals. What are Roman numerals made of? Letters. I is one. V is five. 
X is 10, and so on. I mean, that's the way it is. That's how it went back then. So when John writes this, he actually writes three Greek letters. When he says 666, he writes three Greek letters. One, the chi, represents 600. The second one represents 60. And the third one represents 6. Okay? That's important because John doesn't say 666. That's what we do. He says 666. And the distinction, I think, is important. Now, what's the difference? Well, because what he is saying is that the name of the first beast equals 666, not 666. And this has been the subject of debate for centuries. I remember when I went to Bible school, I had to take a course in prophecy, and my classmates were coming up with, well, let's add up the, the letters of his name to see if this person is the Antichrist. And I think at that point, they were convinced it was Henry Kissinger, because uh, it all added up to 666. We need to remember, John is writing to contemporaries about events that are soon going to take place. John is writing about someone they know, someone they recognize. Okay? He's not writing about someone centuries down the road. He's writing about someone who is alive as he writes. And if you add up this guy's name, it adds up to 666. That's the first thing. The second thing that is critical is that six is the number of man. We know, for example, uh, that seven is the number of perfection, completion. We've looked at the place of numbers uh, in the book of Revelation. Six is the number of man. And there are different explanations that are offered. Man was created on the sixth day. Six is short of seven. That is, man is never able to be if you wish, a seven, as God is, the sevenfold spirit, the seven spirits, man is always six, and particularly because of sin, is never a seven. He is always, if you wish, a six. Uh, six, 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 six is seen by one writer, at least, as failure upon failure upon failure. It's man, 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 but always coming short of God. The fact that it is given three times, that we see three sixes, I think shows man's opposition to God. It shows that man is attempting to transcend his creature, just trying to somehow reach up and, and become God. Garden of Eden. If you eat from this tree, you'll become like God. That, that man has always been trying to do that. And 666, three times, this is man ultimately trying to replace God. Okay. I think that's important because... Well, I'll get to it in a bit. I don't think that John's primary purpose is to tell us, oh, you need to figure out who this guy is. But rather, this man represents humanity in its attempt to replace God. The third thing that I think is critical for us to know is that 666 appears in the Old Testament. Did you know that? 666 appears in the Old Testament. Now, remember, I've told you we can't understand Revelation if we don't know the Old Testament. So if 666 shows up in the Old Testament, then I need to know where that is and what that means. It is found twice in the Old Testament, uh, in 1 Kings and in 2 Chronicles. The 2 Chronicles is merely a sort of the royal version of the, of the history that is found in 1 Kings. It is in a passage in 1 Kings uh, chapter 10, in which we are given a list of 
what came to Solomon every year. That is, tribute what people would bring to Solomon every year. And we are told that every year Solomon received 666 talents of gold. I remember, again, when I was in Bible school, this came up in class and the teacher said, now, don't anybody make any big deal about this. It's just a number. Well, no. It can't be coincidence. Because why isn't it 665? Why isn't it 700? I mean, why is it 666? And by the way, uh, 666 talents of gold, that's 25 tons of gold. I think in today's economy, somewhere north of a quarter of a billion dollars in gold every year. So you might say, so what? He had a lot of gold. He is rich. You know, he's a king. That's the way things happen. What's the point? Well, the point is this. In Deuteronomy 17, Moses gives laws for the king. He says, in the future, when you get a king, there are certain things the king must not do. First of all, he must not get horses, a lot of horses. Solomon did that. Secondly, he must not acquire many wives. Solomon did that. 700 wives, 300 concubines. And thirdly, can you guess what it is? He must not acquire great amounts of gold. Solomon failed on all three counts. Thus, the number 666 in the Old Testament represents a violation, a breaking of the laws that God gave for kings. Solomon, I don't know if he was even aware of it, but he is breaking God's law. God said, don't get a bunch of horses, don't get a bunch of wives, and don't get a bunch of gold. And Solomon did all three. And so, to the Jewish mind, when they hear 666, it recalls Solomon. And what happened to Solomon? the wisest man that we know in the Old Testament. At the end of his life, he's worshipping idols. How can that be? How can the wisest man in the world to whom God had spoken, how can he now be worshipping idols? He broke God's law and he drifted into apostasy. He got horses, he got wives, and he got gold. And the gold, 666 talents. So when we come to Revelation 13 and we read about this number, already from the Old Testament, we have some sense of this is rebellion against God. This is breaking God's law. This is doing contrary to what God has established. It is man relying on himself. It is man, man, man. Now, the question is, does John have a specific man in mind? And the answer, I believe, is yes. Uh, The emperor at that time was Nero Caesar. Now, if you do Nero Caesar in Greek, and remember, Nero Caesar, that's Latin, so if you transfer it over to Greek, it adds up to 1,005. (laughs) That doesn't do any good for us. If you do it in Hebrew, the the name of Nero adds up to 666. And you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But why Hebrew? Why Hebrew? Wait a minute. Remember that what John is doing is he's writing from the Old Testament. 
He's writing against God's covenant people. They've broken the covenant. It's very natural that he would use Hebrew. We find Hebrew words throughout this book. Abaddon, for example, the destroyer. Uh, Satan is a Hebrew word. Armageddon. Hallelujah. We find this book filled with Hebrew words. And this, I think, is what he is doing. But I think that's secondary. I don't think that John is like, hey, I'll tell you a secret. The first beast is Nero. Now, I, I think what John is saying is the dragon is going to destroy you people. He's been making war against a woman ever since. He's going to try to destroy you. He's going to do it through the first beast. And the number of this beast is man, man, man. It is Satan will use human instrumentality to come against you. Man puffed up in himself saying, I can do anything. And his number is 666. And it's not a coincidence, but that's what Nero's name adds up to. So, I don't know if I'm making this clear. The primary point is not Nero. The primary point is man in rebellion against God persecuting the church. I think John could have written this book at any other time in human history and still could have said 666. Because it is the number of man, man puffing himself up in rebellion against God. We'll stop here and pick it up next week. But as I said, even those who know very little about the book of Revelation have heard of 666. It's been the focus of many books, many sermons. New names are presented, it seems like, all the time of people whose name equals 666. You know, in some ways I find that very sad. Because one of the major themes of the book of Revelation is worship. It's worship. It is the victory of Christ and therefore he is worthy of our worship. So after 12 and 13, which are very difficult chapters for God's people. We should expect something of worship. And you know what? We go to chapter 14, and if you look at it, what does it say? The beginning of 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion. See, we're still thinking about the beast, and ooh, who's the beast, and what does it equal? In 666, John is thinking in terms of worship. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. In the midst of describing coming disaster, John speaks of worship. Because when the story is finished, we may be dead. Certainly John's readers would be dead. But Christ will still be victorious. I hope that I've illuminated chapter 13 somewhat to you. I would say on some level, if I haven't done as much as you want, please forgive me, but let's set that aside. I mean... What is important is worship. That Christ is victorious. Yes, there is a dragon. Yes, there is a first beast. There is a second beast. And it represents physical threat, demonic threat, physical threat, spiritual seduction. But John says, I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. 
Christ is victorious. Today we remember his death. Does it ever strike you strange that we do this? Because in many ways this would seem to be a remembering of his defeat. But no, it is a remembering of his victory. He gave his body, he gave his blood that we might have life. And like the 144,000, we should praise him and sing a new song, a song of worship. Let's pray together. Father, I think it must be a part of our human condition that we are enamored with mystery, with things that intrigue us. But the things that we are supposed to do, we seem to conveniently set aside. I think of all the effort that has gone into trying to figure out who is this first beast whose number is 666. Rather than having, I think, a profound sense of worship that the Lamb who was slain now stands on Mount Zion. He is victorious. Today we remember his death, his sacrifice. He gave his life that we might have life. May we remember that this day. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul wrote to the Corinthians the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes
Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.